conferences are boring. I mean, straight up, I'm a keynote speaker. I have now spoken at 630 events, and a lot of them are the same sort of setup. You're in a conference, and there's a pro speaker bookending the beginning and the end, and then a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. And there's actually just so many things you can do to try and bring an uh, event alive. But on our team, we think about our, our success as requiring two elements. There's the machine and the thrill. So for us, the machine is being very methodical about our insights and our content and our, our the, the actual takeaways people are going to get. And the thrill is trying to... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is part two of our interview with Jeremy Gucci. Am I saying your last name correctly? Gucci. Gucci. Okay. Um, so Jeremy, we, we covered a lot of stuff in part one. Um, I think I think where I want to start off with part two is, um, you know, New York Times bestselling book. You've got, you know, 700 of the biggest brands in the world coming to you for advice on on trends and uh, all these kind of things. I'm sure you're getting asked tons of questions. What's a question that you don't think people are asking enough? Or what's a question you wish people were asking you? Uh, I think sometimes a question that uh, I'm not sure the perfect question, but I, in my head, I'm, I'm knowing the answer. So I'll go the other way. But I think that the question is something about, you know, why should I care about innovation and change or what else am I capable of or why am I missing out? And my thought of why I lead to that is that I think that we don't internalize how our life is the outcome of a small number of large impactful choices that seem haphazard at the time. So as an example, before I got into innovation and futurism, there I was working at a bank doing innovation strategy. And Jess, you were doing private equity and, and also working in oil and gas. Well, how did that happen? You like, you know, a, a snowboarding and art, and then you decided to drop out of art school and maybe pursued money. And, and that led you into the world of private equity and banking and finance. Similar sort of story for me. And that led me to eventually selling credit cards. But if you map it out, it even gets simpler than that. Because in school, you chose a different major and you choose finance, maybe because it seems like the right thing at the time. Then you go and you do an interview and you do an interview with four or five companies. You pick the one that pays $2,000 more thinking I'll do this for now and I'll get into something else later. But then you get a promotion and you're doing well and you're earning a bit more. And, and so then if you think of switching to a different industry, you don't because you're safe. And what's weird is all of us can map our life to three, four, five, six decisions that lead us to where we are. And yet all along, there are certain choices you could make that would have opened up your choices and options along the way. One could go to school again if they wanted out of their industry. You could go to conferences in a different world. You could network with different people. And there's ways to, to kind of bridge into different industries. But I think my takeaway or my most exciting thought when I was writing Create the Future is this idea that there's many different paths that you could be on. You're currently on a path. And a lot of things cause you to get stuck on that path. And they get you so stuck that you might miss out on all the other things you're capable of. So if I could help you better see the other pathways you could be on, would you choose one of them? Would you make a slightly different choice? And that was really the problem that I, I wanted to set out to solve. I love it. So <clears throat> uh, I want to go maybe a little different direction. Let's say that I've read your books. I buy in. 
I, I'm putting in the hours, like, you know, your dad sitting down with you and reading all the magazines, right? Um, I'm putting in the hours to, to look at ideas both inside my industry and outside my industry. And, and I'm, I'm paying the price, you know, to get, to get an idea of like where the puck is going to be so I can skate there instead. Right. Um, but then I've got all these other people in my startup with me and they haven't been putting in the time and I need to help them get this same vision of what it, what it looks like things are going to end up looking like, um, any advice on on helping the rest of the team come along with you so you're not just the visionary annoying everybody by thinking way too far in the future and they're worried about what has, needs to happen in the next five minutes? Well, creating a sense of urgency is a really Im- important thought. So uh, if I had a sense of urgency and perhaps purpose, then I'd better understand the mission and, and why we need to push so hard in order to get there. So people create purpose by uh, often doing a little bit more of an intense job of trying to think about where does your product or service or value for the customer sit and what are the ways that you are actually helping people on the other end to consume what it is you're creating. And in different industries, how you create that sense of purpose is going to look different. Maybe you need to showcase your customers receiving the product or service, the testimonials, bringing to life and connecting, you know, your your workers a little bit closer to what that end experience is actually like. Maybe it's trying to draw out the problem that you're combating and how difficult the world is without your actual problem. But the more that people understand that sense of purpose, the more that they'll be bought into what you're doing. And then the second part of creating urgency is about explaining why we need to, you know, put in that passion now, why we need to have a, a drive that's that's higher than, you know, what we might be doing right now. And in our current world of chaos, that might be by portraying the upside versus, uh, you know, what happens if we don't make the innovations and creative moves that we need. But perhaps that's my, my sort of best easy take on that, uh, a combination of purpose and urgency. Well, I, I think uh, as soon as you hit it, as soon as you said it, it really hit me. It's that urgency thing, right? If they feel like things are good enough, then I am probably annoying them with all my big ideas, right? If they're, you know, I think it, I think it is a motivation problem. If I yeah, have one of the, uh, no, go ahead. Well, one of the most powerful workshops that I've done more than a hundred times is something I call dystopia versus utopia. And I kind of lay it out and create the future in terms of how to make it your own. But the general idea is that people are a little bit caught on a path and want change to happen, but maybe you have a tough time getting buy-in. Maybe the CEO wants one or two things. The CFO thinks we need a slightly different direction. The CEO is worried about some stuff and a given team might have five or 10 ideas. And all that sounds like different concepts in different directions. And then People lack purpose, alignment, urgency. So how do you bring them together and create that urgency? And uh, in this workshop, uh, the first thing I like to do is work with the team and you get everyone in your team, maybe in tables of five, to work through the same problem at the same time. The problem or the world to think about is what would cause our, our brand, our company to be irrelevant in five years. If we really thought about it and we laid out all the steps, what would cause us to be irrelevant and not aliens or, you know, this, this wild, crazy disease that we're seeing that could you know, threaten us, but actually let's just try and bring us back to a little bit of reality. What, what things would lead us to becoming irrelevant? And maybe that means not adapting to digital, not attracting the next level of talent, losing distance from our customer, not innovating enough, but you need each team member, each table in this exercise to come up with their list of what would lead us to become irrelevant. 
Then separately, you paint the picture in the next, in part two of the exercise, of what would lead us to be amazing. You know, what problems would we solve or what would we figure out in order to get to that next level? And you probably end up with a mere list, something similar. But the act of going through that kind of gets all the risks and the concerns out on the table while also painting a picture that makes the dystopic future seem real. Wow, the dystopic future happens if we don't do anything and the utopic future seems to require a lot of work. And when people go through that experience, they start to realize how easy dystopia actually can be. And that causes a sense of urgency that we need to motor along. But also when you do that as a team or a group, you start realizing how aligned you need to be. And you can, as a group, start to filter down to the most important problems that you actually need to solve. And when I do that in all sorts of different groups, I find that alignment gets created, urgency gets created, and often there are certain things that will emerge that you didn't expect. So for example, I was doing this with one of the world's top three tech companies, and you know the company, so I won't say their name, but it's the top 200 people from one of the world's top three tech companies. And as they go through all the exercises and they start thinking about what leads to dystopia, I get each table to share and I would hear them come up with their ideas. Uh, our idea is that we don't solve this and that, and our highly competitive culture. Okay, next group. We think it's this, it's that, and our overly competitive culture. Next group. Oh, we came up with this, this, and our destructively competitive culture. And wow, by the end of this experience, when you have every table share the same ideas and the consistent theme is the culture is too destructively competitive, it was like a wave went over them. And then for the rest of the day, what we iterated on was how to fix that element of their culture. So I think a great way to create urgency to summarize up the steps would be paint that big picture with your team of what could lead you to falling apart, your dystopic future. What would you need to solve to get to utopia? And then use that to filter down and figure out where you need to actually focus your efforts. And you'll find you get a lot more alignment and urgency at the same time. I love it. Well, let's talk more about what people get if they hire you. So let's say I go to jeremygucci.com and buy the book, or I, I'm on trendhunter.com, buy the book, or Amazon, and I'm reading it. I'm like, this is amazing. we got to hire this guy. Um, so let's say for me, right, we're about to start this new real estate investment trust, and we're trying to do things different and go after the sec section of the population that, like, Wall Street doesn't care about. You know, they're busy getting some pension funds money. We're going to go we're going to go after the individuals. We're going to try and leverage technology. We're going to try and do more relationships, you know, with an army of licensed reps across the country, right? If, if, you're, if I was hiring you guys to help us think through, you know, how is fintech going to change things or what, what, what do we maybe not see or what do we need to get our minds around in building this thing? Um, what does that look like if, if we engaged you? So there's sort of three things that my company does. We do... Uh, high quality, fast data custom research, which would be when you want to explore a, a new market because of trendhunter.com, we can research about 20 times faster for a 10th of price. And that's what we've done 10,000 projects on. The second thing we do would be workshops and keynotes where we have a lot of methodologies on how to fine tune your idea hunting and how to actually uncover your ideas. And we've done more than a thousand workshops. So we spend a lot of time in that area. And then the third thing, which is more accessible, particularly for um, entrepreneurs or people starting out new ideas, is that we have those tools available both online for free, in many cases, in the book, 
or at our conferences. And at our conferences called Future Festival, we'd walk through what are the latest trends that we're exploring, what are some overlooked opportunities that people are missing out on, and then you'd bring your team and you'd actually go through those same workshops, but in more of a conference setting, so it's a little bit more uh, accessible. So research, workshops, and then the actual conferences, and then a lot of those tools are free uh, on our website or, or in the book. I love it. So since I've got you on the show right now, what, what advice would you have me for looking at fintech, looking at trends and how people will be investing and thinking about, you know, passive income, stuff like that? What, what kind of advice would you have for me? Well, the wonderful world of fintech is interesting because it, there's currently a lot of venture capital being poured into many different markets. So it's one of the hottest areas of investment. So an interesting opportunity is that you can start to explore all of the different funded companies on Crunchbase and not assume that any of them are necessarily doing it right. Venture capital is a model that is just made for failure in terms of huge amounts of money uh, being poured into companies to focus on an idea where the founder ends up controlling maybe 5 or 10% of the business by the time they really get rocking and rolling. So it's very controlled and very focused to solve things in one way. And what that leads to is uh, ideas that might fail, but still have opportunity and merit to them. How did they get initial traction? So I often look at different venture capital funded companies, and I think that there might be more that they could solve and that they're zeroing in on and they're so close to. There might be things so close within their grasp. And that can also give you a sense of where the competitive landscape is oversaturated. So take a look at competitor ideas and recognize that new ideas are more awkward than you think. So there could be gems even in, in ideas that aren't perfectly working out. But the other approach, which is a little bit different, is to forget what other people are doing entirely and instead just talk to people, do focus groups, connect with others, and try and figure out what are the problems that really don't seem like they're solved. What frustrates someone about banking? And if you talk to any uh, millennial, they could tell you about all sorts of things that just don't seem right in how the banking market has been set up. If you talk to Gen Xers, you'll talk to the people that made up the majority of the house foreclosures, and they'll have their own opinions. And by talking to different groups, you could start to zero in on what frustrates people, and that could spark an idea. In consumer research that we've done, we've found that if you have a consumer panel, you're not necessarily going to get an idea from them, but you can really get good at figuring out what the problem is from listening to other people's reactions. And then from the problem, there's all sorts of methodologies you could do to work through what your eventual solution might be. Yeah, I love it. So um, for me, you know, I, I'm self-diagnosed with ADHD, right? So this sounds great, looking up all this different stuff and getting exposed to all these different ideas. What, what's the most fun part of your business? you? Uh, just that, looking at all the different ideas and randomly getting distracted. So uh, you and I get along in that front. Um, Trendhunter.com, if you look at it on the front page, has all sorts of different innovations in fashion, design, technology, banking, whatever it might be. But what's really cool is when you start clicking in on something, it will present to you 10 other related options that are very similar, selected not just by AI, but by humans who thought, if you like this, you might also like that. And what it causes is sort of like a journey where you keep on exploring further and further, looking for your inspiration. And on a desktop, the average user ends up looking at about 20 articles on our site. So it's kind of made to create a little bit of a rabbit hole where you keep on exploring and there's half a million ideas. So it's a very different type of website where 
um, you can get inspired pretty quickly. And so one of my favorite parts uh, of the job is just playing around on Trend Hunter and looking at all the wild, innovative, creative things that are happening in the world. The other part I love is the actual workshops or future festivals where we get to help people fine tune what their ideas are, or maybe help people get inspired in a direction that they didn't think they're originally uh, going to be headed. Oh, I love it. You know, um, it's so easy today. I'm going a different direction here. It's so easy today for somebody to claim to be an innovation expert, right? Or disruption expert or whatever they want to call themselves. Um, when it comes to folks who you actually really enjoy their work, like whose books or what thought leaders do you like? Well, I think that the, well, the late Clayton Christensen or Peter Drucker put out a lot of material that was, uh, you know, very inspiring. And uh, I also like Seth Godin's books, which are very focused, but they're short and quick. And I like that he keeps on looking at different angles. Um, but I think the, the, the key thing when I think about um, materials to inspire me would be that I like looking for tactics and, and methods and uh, examples. So I don't personally like books that are all about one thing, which basically tells me now is the time for innovation. I think a lot of us now believe that it already is the time for innovation. You don't need to convince us. And so it's interesting to see the tactics or tools that one would employ to actually get to those next ideas. So um, talking about tactics, can you share one of the ones from your book that, that you like to talk about that's fun? Sure. Well, you know, I'll give you a fun example that kind of relates. People say failure is important. You need to fail, tolerate failure. Okay. Uh, but how do you do that? Because you know what? I get the idea that failure is important, but I sure hope it's the guy on the other team who fails, not <laughs> my project team. So what we've been collecting with our clients, which is what we put in the book, would be all sorts of tactics for each of these things. So for failure, our client at Adidas will actually host a project funeral to celebrate after your idea doesn't work out. And his reasoning is, well, we all backed the idea in the beginning, so we all share a little blame, so let's all remorse it together. Second, let's help you celebrate the work you put into it. And third, let's put it to rest so you can move on and not feel like you need to cross the street and start working at Nike. Our client at Staples will give you a written permission slip to fail, which means we back you. Our client at MTV in the early days said that their, their chairman let everyone know if you don't have one failure in your career at the company, they will fire you before you get to SVP. Um, and and uh, our clients at BBC would help you put in a gambling fund. Now, the takeaway would be that uh, what you actually need if you want to tolerate failure is a list of little tactics like that, things you can implement to actually make it possible. And uh, otherwise, you're just saying, go fail. And that's tougher to do. So I really like the idea of tactics to help people do these things related to innovation and, and, uh, and creativity. And there's lots of them out there. You just have to push a little harder to find them. Yeah. I especially love the gambling fund. You know, like I like it when, when people give those left and right limits, like, Hey, you're allowed to, you know, I don't know, four seasons or Ritz Carlton or something like you're allowed to make any decision in behalf of a guest of up to 500 bucks without, without permission from a supervisor or something, you know, where you give people this sense of like, instead of saying, Go forth and fail. It's like, okay, you can, like, here's a gambling fund. You can risk up to this much and you're not going to get fired for it. Instead of like, failure sounds all good up front until the, until the, <laughs> until the bill shows up, right? But giving those parameters so people can, like, fail within a safety net, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we love all those little examples and, 
you know, any any time that uh, uh, we work with a client, we try and interview them and get more tactics from them. So we've been building a database of hundreds and hundreds of little tactics for all different sorts of situations. And that's what I was trying to sort of best capture and, uh, and create the future. So I made it so that each chapter ends with a series of things you could actually implement or do. And hopefully some of those help people get a little closer to their big idea. Yeah, love it. Well, maybe changing gears once again, um, events have become so cool. You know, you look at Dreamforce or these, you know, these companies that are not an event company that have like incredible events, right? Um, and and there's certainly the tactic of like, oh, let's just pay a movie star to come or some fancy rock band to come. And that'll make our event cool. But but some of those maybe don't, those events don't have as much of a soul. Um, you guys have such successful events. Can you maybe give some advice of people from the outside, maybe they don't realize or, or just something that you learned over the course of doing all these events that you really feel like uh, has made the difference in, in your events becoming what they have become? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of uh, conferences are boring. I mean, straight up, I'm a keynote speaker. I have now spoken at 630 events, and a lot of them are the same sort of setup. You're in a conference, and there's a pro speaker bookending the beginning and the end, and then a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. And there's actually just so many things you can do to try and bring an uh, event alive. But on our team, we think about our, our success as requiring two elements. There's the machine and the thrill. So for us, the machine is being very methodical about our insights and our content and our, our the actual takeaways people are going to get. And the thrill is trying to create it uh, as an experience. So trying to think about all the little things that would dazzle people. And so if I give you an example, uh, I'll show you what that's led to for our future festival. The competitor events in, in our space and trends and research tend to be a little bit dry, uh, but in contrast, here's how Future Festival works. You'd be, let's say, that same client from Adidas. You decide you're coming to Future Festival World Summit. Awesome. You bring a team of seven people. That's sort of what we, we recommend. Beforehand, you fill out a, a little survey of what you're really interested in. Then when you get to the event, we separate you up. And you're not with your seven people from Adidas. You're on a, an exact track with the people that had the same interest. So now you're kind of on a brain date with 20 people. And let's say you pick that you're into the human body and technology. We will bond you together by doing things related to the human body and technology. So the first thing you might do, instead of being a thousand person event, is you're with this 20 people, you might hang from the CN Tower with a pulse reader hooked up. Then you might go and do real life laser tag, where if you get shot, you get electrocuted. And then <laughs> yoga with a brain reader. You will be excited about the human body and technology even more than before. And one of our researchers would accompany you telling you a bit more about the human body and tech. Now you're so excited. And when you get to our future party, uh, you want to find your other Adidas friends, but you're lost because someone walks up to you and says, hey, can you come to this uh, scent machine, make a couple preferences, and then uh, Jividen, the flavor maker, will make you a DNA-flavored, molecular-tailored cocktail that's a Moscow mule that is made for someone with your exact preferences. Oh, my God. You do that. Then you go to the next section, and there's a hologram interview and a hologram machine. Anyway, point is, you have a crazy day one experience. And that day one, for us, was architected not to be a conference, but instead to be an experience that totally resets who, who you, you thought you were going to be in a sort of or what you thought it was going to be like experiencing a conference. Then day two, we overload you with ideas on the future of all different categories. And in terms of giving tips on how to, to do that, we try to make things really uh, fast pitched 
no real introductions of people, but just moving content, content, content. We try and make a choreography of the future and it's action packed. You'll be overwhelmed. That's part of the deal. Then on day three, we simmer down and we bring people back to their teams where we actually try and distill all the inspiration they had into actual action. I think that's something else that's missing in a lot of conferences. And our, our marketing pitch is we put you through the same workshops we use to help NASA prototype the journey to Mars. But if I was trying to like relate this to other people planning an event, I'd say the key takeaway is how do you add an element of action and filtering at the end of your event so people can just take the time to distill back and figure out what they're going to present to their team. So summarizing that up, day one for us is more about experience and networking and trying to get you hyper-connected to the event. Day two is the content that you expected but condensed in a really intense way. And then day three is trying to help people distill this back so that they'll feel they get value uh, when they go back to their offices and, and try and explain what they learned. You know, uh, that last one is really interesting to me because because I do love conferences and I love all the new and meeting all the people, and right? Um, but I have like, you know, just yesterday, I found a, like, a little sandwich bag that's got like a whole stack of cards in it that I've never followed up with any of those people, right? And like, I'm famous for that. Like I go get exposed to all this stuff, but then you get back to like, you know, 300 unread emails and, and that processing time doesn't happen. Uh, what, a, what a great insight to bake that into your event right there. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's tough for that distilling to happen properly if you rely on people doing it when they get home from the event, because they get home from the event uh, and they have to catch up on three days, maybe plus travel of, of uh, missed work time. So you already come back to the fire hose. So you can't really be expected to come back with a perfectly prepared presentation of what you learned unless we use a little of the time at the event. I love it. Well, listen, this has been great. Um, maybe we'll end with um, what, what's your favorite, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever got as an entrepreneur? Well, I think I would bring that back to our part one interview, which was when I think of the story of my dad and how the secret to remarkable success from his perspective, which has become mine, is not just hard work, but also finding an overlooked opportunity. And so you should think about your creative time as trying to relentlessly pursue an overlooked opportunity, and that's what will take you to your next level. That's great. Well, everybody, please go check out Jeremy's new book. And uh, Jeremy, thanks for making time for this. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet.